We actually are in this series called Staying Alive, and it's, um, it's something that is actually quite serious, and it's, it's, a, it's a great invitation for us. If you're just joining us, I'm so glad you, you'll get caught up in a hurry here, because we're talking about this question, you know, how is it with your soul? Are you, are you alive to God? Are you alive to God? Like, is that how you're living right now? Because all of us are somewhere between alive to God and dead to God. Somewhere, aren't we? All of us, all the time. And the good news is that wherever you may be today and wherever your life has been in recent days, wherever you can be, you can be resuscitated and revived, rejuvenated in a beautiful way and become alive to God. Some of you, that's going to happen to you for the first time. You're going to come alive to God in the next, tonight, today, tomorrow, in the next few weeks. And some of us who have become stagnant, we remember a time when we were more closely walking with God's Spirit, when we were aware of His presence. You know, God's always there. We're just not always aware of it. Sometimes we forget about Him. We become less alive to God. And the good news is that if that's you, then you can come out of that stagnant place. And Jesus is as close as a breath away. And when we come alive to God, every part of our life gets better. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 4, verse 8 is a great verse for us to remember or memorize. It just says, draw near to God. Like, let yourself get hungry for being closer. Don't settle for where you've been. Draw near to God. And he will immediately and always draw near to you in the same time. He will. You draw near to God, He will draw near to you. And so over the next little while, you're invited to connect more closely with Jesus, to become more alive to God and to, to want to connect with Him. So how is it with your soul? How are things? Your soul is your life. You don't have a soul, you are a soul. We talked about last week how, how just as, as we have physical symptoms that indicate we're not doing well physically in our bodies, there are also symptoms of poor soul health, aren't there? And these are times and places in our life when we know we're just not connected with God. And so what leaks out of you when things aren't going very well, when you're in poor spiritual health? Take a look at that list and remember, you you forget God is near, you're you're not alive to God, you get more irritable, you're more angry, you're more afraid and lonely, you you get more less patient with people, you you have all these negative things. What are some of your lead traits? Know what they are and see them as symptoms of, you know what, I'm not really connected and walking closely with God right now. Those are symptoms. They tell you there's an issue. It's a tough way to live. A lot of us spend a lot of time living out of that list. But when we're alive to God, when we're just aware of his presence, that he's for you, that he's with you, that he loves you, and you're walking closely with him, there's also symptoms of soul health, aren't there? The times when you've been like most closely connected to God, Whenever that was in life, think about what you're like. What leaks out of you? Well, you're more patient, you're more kind, you're more thoughtful, you have more empathy, you have more creativity, you have more energy, you have more zest for life. Everything gets better when you are walking with God. So when we ask ourselves, how how are we doing? The question is, how can we live out of that second list more often? How can we stay alive to God? That's what we want. How can we come alive to God and then stay there? That's really the question. So I want to share something with you today that's going to unlock a secret for you. Uh, and it's, it's a sort of revolutionary gift 
that has helped me immensely. And this whole series is very, very personal. I've just picked a few things that will help us because I know because they've helped me so much. So I'm just kind of dishing stuff that's been helpful. And um, I think it'll help you if you want to stay alive to God, but you've ever struggled with that. Like, how do I do that? I think it'll help you. Several years ago, I was at a pastor's gathering, and there was this guy named Gary Thomas who came in, and he spoke. And as he was talking, pastors all around the room, seasoned pastors, light bulbs were going off. And we all began to see a new excitement about how we could approach our own spiritual journey with God. And shortly after that, Gary took those concepts and put them in a book that has been reprinted many times and has helped lots and lots of people, myself included. It's called Sacred Pathways. This super biblical book that helps us discover our pathway to God. And if you want to stay alive to God, it's going to help you. And the key question you're going to be asking today is, what's your pathway? What's my pathway? Everyone's asking that question. What's your pathway? I'll explain what that is in a minute here, okay? Everybody tracking with me? Now, I want to put a couple other uh, things on the, on the screen here. And if you're at home, you'll see them on your screen as well. Um, because these are, these are some great resources. There's so much important stuff that we're talking about. We don't have time to get it all in one message. So we've created a kind of resource hub. It's on our website. There's the address for it. If you just go to our mountaincc.org website, backslash staying alive, you will see all kinds of bonus materials, extra help, stuff that will really help you. Uh, and it's fun and encouraging, engaging, some exercises and, and tools and things. Um, if you're here at one of our campuses, you've got a piece of paper like this in front of you. Um, should look like this. It says spiritual pathways. You'll get that out. You're going to start writing on that in a minute. At home, you're going to text SOUL, S-O-U-L, to the number on your screen. Or you can do that at one of our campuses as well. And you'll get this digital option for a kind of... Um, assessment that you can do. It's private, confidential, no one will see it but you, and, and we'll, as we go through the message in a little bit here, you'll just use that as a way. You can do it on paper, you can do it on your phone, whatever you want, but don't miss the opportunity to really kind of go through this together. So start, text that number, get the, download the, the one if you want the, um, the text version, or just at one of our campuses, you can use this thing, both sides are there, and it'll help us a lot as we dive in. Now, I, you're getting ready to do this. Let me just um, give you a scenario to imagine. Um, so imagine you have this nasty virus, you're not feeling well at all, and it's not running its course, it doesn't seem, so you go to urgent care, you walk in, the doctor takes one look at you and immediately sends you on your way with a prescription for penicillin, which you think is a little interesting because penicillin's really for bacteria, isn't it? It's for an infection like that, and you have a virus, but... You're filling out your paperwork and figure the doctor knows what she's talking about. And, but as you're getting ready to leave, you notice that the next person in line has this pounding headache that they've come in for. And the doctor very quickly looks at him and, and she, she writes a prescription for penicillin and hands it to that person. And then you notice there's a person that's next in line who has a stomachache and they come out with their stomachache with a prescription for, you guessed it, penicillin. And the next person has a cut on their arm, a big gash, and they stitch it up and say, here, here's a prescription for penicillin. Take some of that. And you're starting to recognize what? That you've got a doctor with a sort of one-size-fits-all uh, prescription for penicillin. So you circle back to the doctor and you say, no, um, are you sure I should be getting penicillin for my viral infection. 
And immediately your doctor begins to tell you about the wonders of the drug penicillin and how amazing it is and how everyone can benefit, how it was the first medicine developed to get rid of staph and, and strep and things like that and how it's helped her and millions of people since and you should just go get the prescription and get started on it right away. All right, so if you had that scenario happen to you, I don't know about you, but I've got some more questions for that doctor, right? You got some questions. You want, you want to figure out what's going on. You, you need the doctor to choose a pathway that's particular to that person and the illness, right? You don't choose the same medicine for every malady. And yet, that's pretty much what most Christians do when it comes to our spiritual health. We, we feel sort of stuck, most of us, on one prescription we've been given about how to stay alive to God. And it kind of depends on what circle you grew up in or if you went to church at all. But when I was growing up, the prescription was like this. If you want to be a good Christian and connect with God at all, then it was prescribed very specifically. You get up early in the morning before everyone else and you read your Bible a certain pattern that you would read it and then you write in a journal a certain way, you answer certain questions, you pray this certain pattern of prayer. That was the key. That was the penicillin. Take it, do it, no questions asked. Now, let's not forget, penicillin actually is an awesome drug. I, I'm pretty convinced it saved my life a few times. Okay? And... That prescription for spiritual health served me very well in a lot of ways. That quiet time journaling and reading the Bible in that way. But is it the only way? Is that the only way? I, I, I did that stuff for a long while. And I still do to a large degree. But after a while, here's what happened. It started to feel kind of like, like Saul's armor. In other words, like it didn't fit me exactly. Like I was trying to do something that someone told me to do, but it was sort of unnatural. It felt like work. Now, being a Christian is work sometimes. It's not all fun or it's not all easy. There's a discipline to it. And so you've got to stick to it and grind it out sometimes. But this felt different than just hard. It felt like unnatural. It felt like like a shoe that didn't fit, like I couldn't run the race because of my shoes, you know? And then it started to feel, you know what? It started to feel like I was checking a box, you know? Like instead of now connecting me to God, I was like, okay, I've got to do this thing, so I, ch I checked the box. And it's okay if you do that once or two, but after a while, just like that felt like that way all the time. And then guess what? Then I started checking the box less frequently. I just wasn't getting it done because it just, it felt like a chore, and it's like, I didn't get the chores done today. And so then guess what happened? I started feeling really bad. I had a big guilt trip. What does guilt make you do with your relationship with God? It kind of drives you away, doesn't it? So do you see the irony of this? The very prescription that supposedly was supposed to help me just really connect and stay close to God had actually kind of served the opposite purpose in my life. For a while, it kind of made me feel farther away from God. Now, here's something else I noticed. I started to notice that even in a certain little period I was going through, when I hadn't been like doing my quiet time, so to speak, I sometimes still felt really connected to God. 
Like I could tell there were certain periods I was just really growing and, 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 and I was alive to Christ and I wasn't even taking the prescription. But what I was doing was some other stuff. I, I was listening to some preaching that just like lit my fire. It was like it was awesome. I was, and, and then I was spending a lot of time in nature. I, I was cross-country skiing a lot in those days and I, and in the winter. And, 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 I, and I had on these headphones. And I would listen to worship music. And I felt like God was closer to me when I was skiing than I did ever when I was sitting in my chair doing my quiet time. And, and then, and then I, I started to get intellectually stimulated. I was going to school at the time, and they were challenging me with some new thoughts. And somehow that, I was inviting God into that. And everything I was learning was so exciting and new, and I felt stimulated by that. And I was alive to God through that. And then someone introduced me to solitude and silence. And I, I, I was all new to me, but I found that when I was quiet, alone before God, that it was really connecting me. And all these other avenues started to really just show the fruit in my life of helping me get close to God in a way that my quiet time really hadn't done in a long, long time. And that's the concept of spiritual pathways at work. Even if you find something that's wonderful and works for you, you got to change it up in a while, every one in a while, don't you? I mean, I love steak, but I don't want to eat steak for every meal, for every day, for my whole life, right? So I hope you're hungry to want to figure out this thing called spiritual pathways because you have a pathway as well. You have a need and a hope, a desire to connect with God, and you need a prescription that fits you. God doesn't make us cookie cutters. We have all these different experiences. We know about temperaments that are different. Our personalities are different. Our life experiences are different. Our learning styles are different. There's so many different things about us to think that we would all just sort of have a cookie cutter approach to sticking with God is, is not true. So remember James 4.8, when you draw close to God, God will draw close to you. The question is, how do you do that? What's your pathway? I'm going to walk you through nine pathways, and most people gravitate to one or two. Sometimes people say, I think there's like three or four there. We're going to walk through them. Score yourself. You're going to kind of do an assessment as we go. Each one, you're going to kind of say, that's me a lot, like a, like a 10 or a 5 or a 2 or whatever. But figure out a system. Great. You're going to be glad at the end of this if you kind of pay attention as we go along and know which one really speaks to you. Now, repeat after me, everybody at home, everyone, all the campuses, number one, repeat after me. All the pathways are legit. Say it. Number two, repeat it after me. All the pathways are biblical. I want to find my pathway. That's it. That's the key. We want to find my pathway. All right. Don't feel guilty if some of these just don't light your fire and they sound really spiritual, but you're like, that just sounds boring to me. That's just the difference between pathways. Don't worry about someone else. You just think about you. And, and I'm just going to tell you right off the top, in the Bible, these, these pathways are all over the place. Just think for a second. Abraham in the Old Testament. Man, he, he built altars and sacrificed for worship. And Moses and Elijah, they're activists who are confronting evil around them. David celebrates with enthusiastic styles of worship and dancing, sometimes embarrasses his wife with it. Solomon was a giver who had a flair for art and elaborate temples and loved to be generous. And Ezekiel and John loved these images and sounds and sights. And Mordecai cared for others. And Peter's mother-in-law, she cared with practical ways with her hands. But Mary, she just sat at Jesus' feet. And all of these different ways are all acceptable and all biblical. What's your pathway? I'll give an overview of each one. We're going to move pretty quickly. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, the titles are a little wonky. I just kept them the same as they are in the book. I didn't write the book. 
but I wanted you to be able to keep the same titles in case you're going to work with the book. And remember, this isn't a, a lecture. This is a lab session, so you're doing the work. You're figuring out how it works. Everybody ready? Hold on. Buckle up. Here we go. Number one, survey of nine pathways. What's your pathway? Number one, the naturalist. The naturalist loves God outdoors. Their motto might be, let's take this outside. Because when... That's where a naturalist really comes alive to God, is outdoors. You feel close to God. So if going for a walk or going to the beach or going to the mountains or going to the lake or going to the river or going to the woods sounds really good to you because you've had some of your times of real connection with God in those places, you might be a naturalist. A naturalist is like not opposed to any of this stuff, but I don't really need books. I don't really need a seminar or a crowd. I, I just get me by the trail or the mountain or the, the sea, and I can hear and see and feel God's presence really, really powerfully in those places. I've heard someone say, like, I feel like I hear from God better out there in the wilderness than I do, you know, um, listening to you preach. And I'm like, I'm not sure how to take that, but I think I'm just going to say they're a naturalist. I've got a lot of this in me. You've heard me talk about how when I'm out on a, on a kayak in a lake in the middle of the night, listening to the loons and watching the sky, my heart just leaps toward God in a way that I just can't describe to you. Maybe you're that way. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And a naturalist hears that and feels it and sees it. Nature screams God's presence to me, and I connect well with him there. I've had some of my closest moments with God skiing or camping or climbing. It's crazy. Because naturalists, for the naturalist, the best cathedral is the one that God himself built. That's the outdoors. So in the Bible, it's all over the place. Hagar meets God at a desert. Abraham and Moses meet God on a mountain. Jacob at a river crossing. Jesus taught by the lake, used all kinds of nature symbols because it's, it's all there. The song for the naturalist is How Great Thou Art. Okay, There's a verse in that song that says, When through the woods and forest glades I wander, and I hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur, and I hear the brook, and I feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul. You can't hold yourself back. You're just like, how great thou art. Because nature just speaks to you that way. A couple warnings I'm going to give on each one of these. Um, some temptations or dangers for each one. There's always dangers to each one. One is a sort of individualism where you get out in nature, you think it's all about you and nature. Well, if Jesus spent plenty of time in nature, but it always was a way to connect with the Father. And so we want to remember that's what we're talking about here, not just like loving nature for nature's sake. Second, there's a, there's a kind of subjective experience that can come to a person who's a naturalist. You're out there and you, I heard God speak to me on my walk. Well, that's great, but if it doesn't square up with what God says in his word, let's take his word over your walk. You get the point? And third, we've got to be careful not to idolize nature itself. This is very trendy in our time. It's actually a heresy called pantheism. Pantheism worships nature. It's prevalent today. God, though, is not in nature in that sense like a pantheist would say. Nature isn't God. That stream, that tree is not God. That's God's creation. It has his mark and imprint, and it lives in, to, to honor the creator. But all creation points to the creator. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the Bible says. It doesn't say, there, it doesn't say that the earth is the Lord. So those are some cautions. Are you a naturalist? How many would say, raise your hand up real high if you think, I got some of that in me. Maybe you're five or above at least. A bunch of us, okay? A bunch of outdoorsmen and women, okay? 
Mark it down, mark it down somehow on your sheet. You know, make a note or two as we go. Like that's a high one, maybe an eight for me or whatever. Let's go on number two. Sensates. I told you some of the names were a little weird. Sensates. It comes from the word senses because you love God with your senses. Your senses are what help you really connect with God. Sight and touch and sound and taste. Beautiful art and music. Things like that really stir your heart toward God. So the sensate is someone who is awed by beauty and who you know, might be architecture or, or majestic art that just brings out the splendor of God for you. Purposeful design. It might be liturgical worship. You know, a kind of formal worship service that just so orderly and beautiful just lifts you. Maybe it's a pipe organ or maybe it's, it's pounding, thumping bass with, with lights and contemporary stuff. But it can send your heart soaring because of the engagement with your senses. It just helps you come alive. For some people, they find that distracting and annoying. Other people, it really draws them in. That's a sensate. One time, Henry Nouwen was telling how he was, um, at a time in his life, he was just very, very... Uh, needy and restless and worn out and kind of sad and depressed, honestly. And he went to a friend's office and his eyes fell upon uh, Rembrandt's painting of the return of the prodigal son. If you've ever seen that painting, it's breathtaking. Let me show that picture there. It, it's a breathtaking picture. And as he saw it, it stunned him. And he stared into it and he transposed himself into the picture and it took his breath away and he saw it so beautiful and powerful he couldn't stop staring and he lost the conversation with his buddy and he, and he, and he started laughing at one point and crying in the next. It just touched him so deeply because it embodied what he needed from God to fall like that son who had been away back into the arms of a father who would have him back and it just spoke to him and he, and he wanted to weep and he said that painting and that picture and that moment spoke to me in a way no sermon or anything ever could have done and it made him alive to God. Now if that kind of speaks to you a little bit, like that's something like that's happened with a, with a song or a painting or an experience where it was something beautiful that just touched you in a deep place and you looked at someone next to you and they're like, what? I don't get it. You're like, you might be, this might be you. Because not everybody gets this. In scripture, the senses are very powerful God is often, his appearances are accompanied with light and sound and smoke and flashes of lightning and brilliant things. For the book of Revelation, you got Jesus with a voice like a trumpet and rushing waters and brilliance of the sun. This is, you know, very, very, you know, silence can be reverent, but if you think that's the only way to show reverence or appreciation for God, you're going to be for a big surprise in heaven. Because the book of Revelation promises all these very sensual, sensuous things. So the Psalms say, sing loudly a new song to the Lord. So whether through classical music or contemporary, it doesn't matter. The senses are very powerful. Now, temptations here, remember that the senses, they can deceive. They can deceive us a little bit. People have gone forward to accept Christ because they, they were so taken by the experience of the moment and then uh, the, their commitment didn't last. Because their senses were titillated, but they didn't have a deep commitment to accompany it. So we've got to be cautious and remember that. And also we've got to be careful not to just fall in love with the experience of having our senses pleased. Because we can, like with worship, we can just get to where we worship worship itself rather than the God that we are called to worship. Does that make sense? So those are some cautions. Are you a sensate? Mark your score. Okay. Keep moving here. How you doing? You still with me? Number, number, number three. 
Maybe you're a traditionalist is the word used to describe someone who loves God through like ritual and symbols, like certain things like, like maybe just give me that old-time religion, like these old, the old good old disciplines of, of structure and, and, or, or the symbols of certain tr- church traditions or meaningful traditions. Those words are sometimes negative to some people, like ritual and tradition. But for a lot of people, they're very, very attractive and turn you on toward God. So maybe a disciplined approach to the Christian life, faithful attendance and habits, meaningful traditions and symbols, if that really speaks to you, you this might be you. And I didn't grow up with any of that kind of stuff. My church was very, very plain and simple. But when I went off to grad school, I started to learn a whole new way that a whole bunch of other Christians had practiced for a long time. And a lot of it really spoke to me. One example I'll just give you. I grew up kind of thinking like written prayers, like if you read a prayer, it wasn't like a real prayer. Like it wasn't, it didn't sound very, you know, authentic because it wasn't like spontaneous or being spoken out of the heart. And now I'm at the place where I, I feel almost the opposite. Where every, every day and every, every morning and every night I read written prayers. I'll share that book with you next week. And they speak to me and for me in a way that I don't know how I could do on my own. And that's an example of a tradition that has come to mean so much for me. A lot of the rituals and traditions get set aside because for some of us, we grew up in churches that overdid it or we just never connected and it was like a meaningless thing. But for others, those things are still so full of rich, there's layers and you know you can touch God through some of these powerful symbols. Maybe it's praying the Lord's Prayer together or you like things like Ash Wednesday or Good Friday or, or like for centuries, the, the, the Christians would read Psalm 62 and Psalm 140 every day. Now some of us would be like, that structure and tradition sounds inviting and freeing, and others sound, wow, I want to read something different today. Well, if you're kind of the former, you might be a traditionalist, okay? Everybody getting the idea? Symbols are really important to traditionalists, like the bread and wine of communion, the waters of baptism, the fire of the Holy Spirit. This is a person who probably, you know, has symbols or a cross hanging in their, in their home. A couple of temptations. One it's possible to be a traditionalist and love these things, but then just go through the motions and not really connect with God in a real way. Number two, you can get so caught up in the traditions and doing all this stuff and the habits and everything that you kind of forget our responsibility to other Christians. Through the prophet Amos, God said, I hate your religious feasts and festivals and traditions because your hearts are far from me. You don't even know me. So do away with all that if, that's, if you need to to get back to me. And third, traditionalists can be a little judgy sometimes if they're not careful. Like, like they just think the thing they're doing is so important. You love your traditions and all that maybe, maybe even more than you love God or other people. So that's it. Mark it down. Whatever. Where, how, how, how much does that kind of describe you? Like that liturgical, traditional, habitual, structured. Number four. Here's a word we don't use in everyday language either. Maybe you're an ascetic. (laughs) An ascetic. This is loving God in solitude and simplicity. An ascetic is someone who's just happiest when you just like leave them alone where they can get quiet with Jesus and they're happy as a clam. Okay? That's all they need. They don't need a church service. They don't need some fancy liturgy or, you know, band or anything like that. They don't need any symbols. That's all distraction. It's all just noise of the world to this person. The, the, the pictures that the sensate loves, they don't need that. Just let me be by myself with God. A lot of ascetics are introspective people and introverted people. 
If you are, you might be an ascetic. Like John the Baptist, he lived in solitude. He lived in these austere conditions with simplicity and a deep commitment to God. Now, all that sounds scary to some people, but for other people, it like lights their fire. Jesus had some of these tendencies himself, didn't he? He was in the wilderness for 40 days, fasting in solitude. He taught us that we should fast and we should pray and do pray in secret. And those kind of things help this kind of person come alive when you seek God alone. If you're drained by people and the thought of being around them even more or doing something drains you even more, but it, the best thing sounds like just being by yourself with God to refill your tank. Sounds, you might be an ascetic. Jerome in the 4th century said, To me the town is a prison, but solitude is is paradise. And if that describes you, you might be one of these guys or gals, okay? Temptations, you can overemphasize your personal holiness and forget the outward demonstration of compassion or love to people. You can also, if you're an ascetic, you can start to kind of feel like you're a little bit spiritually elite, like I'm really sacrificing and I'm, I'm strict and observing all this stuff. And you just have a little snobbery about you, like I'm a little more holy than all these people who aren't really doing this with me. You got to be careful about that. All right. If you like solitude and silence, being alone with Jesus, that's you. Okay? Is that you or not? Mark it down. How many would say, I have some of that in me? I like to just be alone with Jesus. Very many? Not as many as, as the other one. Okay? Good. Let's keep moving. You still with me? All right. There's a lot. Okay. It's a fire hose isn't done yet. Keep, keep with me here. Uh, number five. Number five is the activist. The activist is one who just says, I'm going to love God by resistance and confrontation. This is about like caring about justice issues. This is about looking at the world and you want to advocate for people who need someone to stand up for them, to care for them. You, you, you want to let stand against what God hates and, and afflict the comfortable. You know, for God's sake, let's do something about this. Key scripture might be Jesus. When he goes into the temple and he sees instead of offering pure sacrifices to God, people are making money as a big racket and he turns the tables over as an activist to change that system. And that's kind of the, the verse that sort of symbolizes this. Instead of, you know, worshiping by singing a song or going to a building, this person wants to get their hands dirty. Let's go do something to change the world. You might be an activist who cares about evangelism, like, I want to help people find the hope of Jesus. Or you might be uh, an activist who cares about social involvement, like, I want to bring changes in society that line up with God's purposes, like William Wilberforce did with slavery, when Martin Luther King did with, with, with uh, equal rights, John Wesley and Chuck Colson with prison fellowship. There's so many examples like that. People who say, I'm going to make a difference about, about the abortion issue to care for, for people who, who are having them and, and to stand up for babies and moms and for systemic injustices and food insecurity and abused women and kids who are, are put into slavery and all, all of this stuff is part of the activist's heartbeat. Now you got to be careful because like Moses, he was a misguided activist at first. He saw one of his Israelite buddies being mistreated and what did he do? He killed the man who killed him. It's like, it's like bombing the clinic in order to, that's the, that's the wrong approach. But God used that in him later to be a good activist to set his people free. A lot of activists will cringe about their behavior in their younger years when they were so enthusiastic it wasn't yet tempered by maturity in the Spirit of God. So you've got to be careful there. 
God uses activists like a prophet in a prophetic way to kind of afflict the comfortable and help us. They're involved. They want to go to battle. They're, they're not afraid. But be careful here. It's not just about being belligerent for the sake of being belligerent. It's not just about being disagreeable or starting a fight or because you love the smell of the arena. We need reluctant activists who are humble in spirit but who are unafraid to do what God's calling us to do. So be careful that you're not divisive or ugly about it, where you do more harm than good to God's name. And always be guided by the temperance of the Holy Spirit, which seems like a really good thing to say. So this is, this is it. One other caution is they can be sort of judgmental, like why aren't more people, I don't think sitting around and praying about it's going to do anything. Don't say you're going to pray. Let's do something because prayer is not. So you can get kind of judgy about your way being the most important way. So are you part activist? Okay. You want to get something done. A little more, a lot more talk, a lot less action. I mean, a little, lot more action, a lot less talk. You know, whatever, whatever Elvis said. I'm not sure he was an activist, but you know what I mean. All right. Deep breath. Okay. Hang on. We're, we're coming down the home stretch now. We're coming down the home stretch. Number six. Number six is the caregiver. These people don't want to afflict the comfortable. They want to comfort the afflicted. The caregiver loves God by loving other people. How can I help? How can I help? That's what they say. They have huge heart. They want to serve God by serving people. And so they really come alive when they have an opportunity to show compassion or to show up and help in a practical way. Um, they don't understand contemplatives who sit by themselves all the time. They're like, but the people are over here. Let's take a meal. Let's do something. Or, or, and and what, what drains some people, like, oh, my gosh, that, pre- that person has so many problems. Or I don't know, that's just such a messy situation. The caregiver is drawn to those situations, and they fill them up with life because they want to make a difference and get in there. This is why some people, I think, have the gift of fostering kids or, or caring especially for special needs people or people who are alcohol and drug dependent. You know, sometimes it's like some people are just like, I can't touch that, but caregivers are drawn to that. They make great nurses and, 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 and thing, uh, pe- caring for the elderly or disabled or homeless people or people in prison or, or you know, things like that. The temptations can be, it, you can get a little judgy, like why, why, aren't every, why isn't everybody, you know, um, caring like I am? And sometimes people who have this gift, if you're not careful, it can kind of become self-serving. Like, I'm going to show up and show care, but really it's about me. I want you to need me. I want you to want me. I want you to love me. So I care. And that way you've got to be careful of that. And last thing, if you're a caregiver, you've got to be careful not to neglect the people closest to you. A lot of people love to go serve the world, and then they neglect their own families sometimes. You've got to be careful of that. That make sense? How many would say, I'm a caregiver? That's, got, that's a pretty high one for me, yeah? Two hands here for some of you, all right? Number seven, are you an enthusiast? An enthusiast. This one's exciting to talk about because this person loves God in a big way with celebration, and they love the mysterious part of the faith, the supernatural part, they just, and they want to feel and experience God. That's what they have to do. It's not so much the mind as it is the heart. They're energetic cheerleaders for God. They bring energy to worship and everything they do. They're inspired by joyful celebration, and they usually bring joyful celebration in the way they go at it. They're moved deeply by experiences with God. They don't want to just learn it in their head. They want to feel it. And that's an enthusiast. 
Enthusiasts love with gusto, and they love also the supernatural parts. Like, they think it's cool if you just want to pray your simple prayers every day, but they love those big prayers that are answered in a big way, and they're drawn to that kind of thing. And there's lots of examples of this in the Bible, where strange prayers are answered, and supernatural things happen, and, and uh, that, that's a big part of things in the Bible. They're, they're, they don't want to go like a traditionalist to have the same structure every day. They hope something blows up in the service, and something that never happened before happens. So it could be really exciting and special in that way. You watch two people, you might see one like my, my dad, the way he worships, he's so reverent, but he'll, he'll fold his hands, his head is down, he's deep in thought, he's worshiping God with all his heart, but he doesn't move. And then right next to him might be an enthusiast who's like clapping and dancing and jumping because they can't hold it in. And that's, that's the difference, and that, that's an enthusiast. The danger is you gotta be careful about just craving experience for experience's sake, Right? And you got to just be careful also, you know, just they love excitement and energetic expressions of God, but you got to be careful about equating our good feelings with worship itself. We don't want to start worshiping worship and how we feel about it, okay? Some of you are enthusiasts. I won't ask you to raise your hands because you'll never get them back down again. So let's go on. Number eight. Number eight, only two more. Eight is the contemplative. The contemplative is a person who just says, oh, Jesus, I love you. I love you, Lord. You love God through adoration. It's deeply personal, and it's just a relationship that's very deep. You don't need to serve God so much or accomplish things. You just want to sit in his presence, soak up God's presence. When Martha was stewing about, doing all this stuff, and she said, get Mary over here to help me, Jesus. And Jesus just said, Mary, who is sitting at his feet adoring him, was doing something good too. And she was one of these. There's some people that are around God and they sit with God in such a way that just you want to be around them because they just have something about them because they've been contemplating things in a special place with God. Like they've fallen in love with God. Teresa of Avila years ago, centuries ago, talked about an interior castle, like this big vast chasm inside of all of us where we can go with God, like deep chambers, not like serving or outward things, but down inside, like deep places where you hold hands with God and walk and gaze into his face and get caught up into a relationship with him. Now this Contemplative stuff is meant to be something with a beginning and an end that you pass through. You don't live there. You don't stay down in that castle, but you come out and you have something really beautiful to share. You might pray little prayers as you contemplate, like, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that You can just focus on that one thought or that one word, love, and you could meditate on it because you're good at that. You center your thoughts around God. You need to go, you love to go deep with God. No, some of the dangers and temptations here is again, if you love God that deeply, don't forget about people. He's always calling us to share his love with people. Don't forget to gaze not just at the face of Jesus, but at the faces of people who need him. And we can also kind of fall into a kind of, when you're so deep like that, it's really easy to kind of feel like you're sort of superior spiritually. You've got to be careful of that. And you've got to be careful not to forget the mission of the church. But contemplatives love being alone with, with Jesus and just spending time with him, adoring him. Some of us are contemplatives by nature. The last one is actually a big one for me. It's, it's, it's the intellectual. It just means that you love God with your mind, too. 
The model might be, let's think about it. You love to study stuff. You love to just, when you learn new things about the Bible, God, you know, the Christian faith, it just draws you close and you really come alive to God. So you can, you love maybe to immerse yourself in a topic or study a book or all that. You love to listen to a podcast maybe that enriches your faith and helps you learn something new and you get really excited that way. Maybe that's you. You don't necessarily need to teach it or anything. You just, you just love to study it. And Jesus did say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what this one's accenting. So when you learn something new about God or your faith, the church or mission, it's energizing. That might be intellectual for you then. It doesn't have to be formal education. It's not about your IQ. It's not about how smart you are. It's about are you really just loving when you're not stagnant because you're learning something new and you're growing in that way. You can love God by studying a lot of things. Now, now this is a person that may appreciate the sermon. For, for, you know, it's a part of worship. Not, the singing will probably speak to some others more, but the, the, the sermon may be for the intellectual who loves to, to get their mind wrapped around it. Jesus went to the temple when he was 12 years old and his parents couldn't find him. He went back. What was he doing? Talking about intellectual stuff with the leaders there. And he said, I'm about my father's business. I've been in my study sometimes trying to prepare to have something to say to you guys, something a lot more important than, than hokey Super Bowl predictions. And when I'm working through the text, sometimes something will hit me. God will show me something and just like take my breath away and I get so excited I can't wait to stand up here and share it with you. Just yell out in my office, my life, what's wrong? Nothing. Or I'll weep before the text. That's, that's a sign that you, you just love learning new stuff. Um, temptations are you can think you're a little smarty pants. And sometimes intellectuals can be kind of snobbish and like to wear on their sleeve how smart they are and how many degrees they have and flout it and make you feel like if you don't have it, you're not quite like them or not good enough. And some of them love controversy. They love to argue because they think they can win. And they forget that Christian life isn't about being right. And it's not about just knowing a bunch of facts. It's about walking with Jesus. All right, friends. That's it. It's a long blow, isn't it? Okay. Whew. Deep breath. Take a look back through your list. Okay? What do you think your top three or four are? Circle them. Take a look at them. What are your top couple? Should have already emerged as we talked. You've kind of held them in your mind. Look at your sheet. Take a look. Which is it? And now, which pathway feels the most natural to you? Maybe which one is like, if you had to say which one's the number one, which one, it feels like it fits you the best. Which would be like number one? Put a star by that. Remember that. Think about that. Now, here's an important question. You might have to spend more time on this, but here's an important question. Which one is kind of missing out of your diet right now? You're not walking on that path very often, even though when I described it, you're like, that's me, but you're not really doing it. Like when you heard, you know, I love to be outdoors, you say, yeah, that's me, but you're not really doing that. Or I love to learn new things, but you're not really listening to any podcasts or, or learning much there because you've just been so busy or something. What's missing? And then the last question, what specific step will you take and you're going to plan it out right now to connect with God over the next 30 days so you can become more alive to God with this new insight about your pathway. What would you do? What would it look like for you? 
If you scored high in the naturalist or the intellectual or the ascetic, it could mean that you've got to spend some more time outside, go for a walk, or you've got to engage in activities that engage your mind, or you've got to be alone, make a plan, and you can combine them. I'll walk through the woods praying alone. You can combine these, but make a plan. I'm going to care for people that God puts in my I'm going to sign up for this. I'm going, to be a, I'm going to volunteer for this or that. Whatever it needs to be. Because, friends, I promise you, God is, Jesus is standing at the door. He's knocking. And the way you open the door to the whole pathway to connect with him is through a pathway that makes sense to you. So I invite you and I urge you, what's your pathway? Get a plan. Now, what are you going to do about it? Let's pray. God, we, we ask for your help on this. This is, we just covered a, a million miles of hard, you know, concepts and big stuff. But we just pray, that, first of all, that you will help us to long inside to connect with you. And then help us to make our way down a pathway towards you. Because we know that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Help us not to worry about anyone else and what their pathway might look like. And help us to find our way to you so we might be alive to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.